And let's pray as we come to God's Word this morning. Our Father, we are thankful that we do not come to a dead and cold word this morning, but that we come to one that is living, that is active, that is warm, that is truly a gift of love from you, our Father in heaven. We pray that you would help us to receive it as that this morning, that we would not Allow coldness to grip our hearts as it has gripped our skin this morning as we walked outside. That we would be warmed and enlivened by your word. That it would stir us for your glory and for your praise. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Matthew chapter 7, verses 12 through 14. This is the holy and errant word of God. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few." Though the grass withers and the flower fades, the Word of God is forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. What is the rule by which you live your life? And what is the way your life is headed? Two very simple questions, questions that we all have to answer, that we all have to decide. You can put off the discussion in your head for some period of time, but the truth is, is that we all live by some rule and we are all headed some way, whether we have articulated that to ourselves or not. We live by a rule and we're headed some way. These are the two questions that Jesus puts before us this morning. They are two essential questions that are tied together. What is the rule by which I live my life? And what is the way which my life is headed? First, the rule. We all live by rules. Some rules are better than other rules. Uh, my grandparents had the rule when I was growing up that you could not touch their couch. So they literally covered in plastic, and when you sat on it, it was like sitting on saran wrap. I think I can say in all humility and love and respect for my grandparents, that was a bad rule. Uh, there are good rules. You and I, most of us in this room, think that hygiene is a good thing. And so we have the rule that we cleanse our bodies. We take a shower every day, or some of you every other day, and we know who you are. But it's a good rule. Uh, there are the good rules of we're only going to uh, maybe eat one dessert after every meal. That's a good rule. 
Some of you have the rule that you'll eat no desserts ever. That's a bad rule. But we all have rules. We have rules by which we live our lives. Jesus here gives us a rule that is to guide not just a a portion of our life, not just an area of our life, but it's to encompass all of our life. This one rule. Now, to understand it, we have to figure out what Jesus is talking about because He begins this verse, He begins this passage with saying, so, or therefore. And as the old rule goes, whenever you see a therefore, you need to know why it's therefore or what it's therefore. And so you have to go back and you have to say, well, what's this therefore connecting us to that comes before it? And it could be that what Jesus is referencing, He's giving us this rule because He's going back up here to verses 7 through 11, and He's pointing out that, you know what, the Father has given you all kinds of gifts. You are the receiver of these good gifts from your Father. Therefore, this is the rule that you are to live your life by. That's possible, but I don't think that is the case. It could be that he's going back up to verse 1 of chapter 7 and verses 1 through verse 6 there where he's pointing out that we're not to judge one another. And so, because you're not to judge one another, therefore, this is the rule that you're to live by. Though I also think that has a little bit of warrant, I don't think that is the answer either. Make the case that I think what Jesus is doing is He is saying, look, I have preached you this entire Sermon on the Mount, and we have gotten to this point, so therefore, in light of everything I've taught you, in this longest recorded Sermon of Jesus, everything that He has said since the beginning of chapter 5, in light of all of this, therefore, live by this rule. I want to make the case for two reasons. One is that this is the climax of the sermon. This is kind of the apex of the sermon. Jesus has arrived at this point, and now He's going to say this is the one rule by which you are to live, and this is the one decision that you must make. It's the high point of the sermon. And the second reason is that He says this, is, this rule is the law and the prophets. That is, it's not just the application of this sermon, of His sermon, but He says it is the application of all the Scriptures that have come before. The entire Old Testament, this is the application, even as it is the application of my sermon. So, what is this rule? Well, it's what's been called the golden rule. Some form of this rule has existed in almost every world religion and almost every philosophy that has ever existed on the face of the earth. There has been some rule that was much like this rule. It's, a, it's an overarching rule, isn't it? An overarching rule that prevents the need to create all kinds of case law with endless rules with what we do in this circumstance or what we do in that circumstance. That would be endless. And so there is one rule here, kind of like the one ring in Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, one rule to rule them all. 
a rule by which we can judge and measure our actions by. And you think if this one rule was lived by all, how many controversies and how many complaints and how many conflicts would be ended? If this just one rule was abided by, it takes a hundred questions that we could ask in any given circumstances and just makes it one question, just one question that I have to answer. Is this what I would wish someone else to do to me? And then to act in light of it. When this rule has appeared throughout history, it has almost always been articulated in the negative. So, for example, an old ancient Egyptian papyrus from the 6th century B.C. reads this way. It says, that which you hate to be done to you, do not do to another. Isocrates, the ancient Greek philosopher from the 4th century B.C. said this. He said, do not do to others that which angers you when they do it to you. The Greek Stoics used the principle, what you do not want to be done to you, do not do to anyone else. Siddhartha of Buddha fame taught hurt not others in ways that you yourself would find hurtful. Rabbi Hillel of the, the, the elder in the first century B.C., one of the most famous Jewish rabbis of all time, said this. He said, what is hateful to you, do not do to anyone else. This is the whole law. All the rest is commentary. Go and learn it. But you'll notice that the rule that Jesus gives to us, is not in the negative. It's in the positive. It's truly a golden rule where all the rest of these are, are shadows and but silver rules. Because this golden rule includes within it the negative. Do not do to others as you would not have them do to you. But it doesn't allow you to stop there. The, the emphasis upon the negative is a, is a good standard, but the standard, that, that's a standard that doesn't reach the standard of God. Because in the positive, there's no limiting factor. It's an ethic that, that surpasses all others. Because the positive embraces the negative and yet doesn't allow us to neglect action. try and understand this a little bit. The, the golden rule which Jesus communicates takes aim at both what we would call the sins of commission and the sins of omission. The sins of commission are those sins that we commit by doing something. So we do something and it's something that we're not supposed to do and that is a, a sin of commission. Don't do to others what you wouldn't want others to do to you. And that's often what we mean when we speak about the golden rule. Well, one of our kids will be sitting on the floor with another kid, and our kid will make fun of that kid, and our kid will steal something from the other kid. And we will say, do unto others as you want others to do unto you. And what we mean is, don't do that to them, because you wouldn't want them to do that to you. In essence, stop it, the negative. But Jesus is emphasizing the positive. He has in view the sins of omission as well. 
sins committed by failing to act, failing to do the right thing towards another, not just refraining from doing the wrong thing to someone. I think later in the Gospel of Matthew, when we get there, Matthew 25, it is that great scene of, of the last judgment, and Jesus says that He will separate the people into two groups. There will be some that are put on His left and some that are put on His right. And the ones on his left are the goats, and the ones on his right are the sheep. And what distinguishes them from one another? It's what they did, what they didn't do. He says, for I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. They're sins of omission, not doing. Think about the parable of the Good Samaritan that Jesus tells and that Levite that passes on the way. He didn't beat the man. He didn't steal from the man. He just didn't do anything for the man. But the Good Samaritan is good because he does good. He treats the other man as he would desire to be treated. And that's the golden rule. The silver rule is far too convenient. It remains too self-focused. I, I won't lie about that person because I don't want that person lying about me. I won't gossip about that person because I wouldn't want them gossiping about me. I won't steal from that person because I wouldn't want them stealing about me, stealing from me. But the golden rule is wholly different. It's focused on the other. It's consumed with the other, not with self, with the other. Let me bless them. Let me bless them even as I would want to be blessed. Let me love them even as I would want to be loved. Let me be kind to them even as I would want to receive kindness. It's positive. It is, it is in essence love. The golden rule demands that we have a general orientation toward others, an outlook on life that has others as central. And isn't this the radical ethic of Jesus? And it's the radical ethic that He demands from His disciples. You think about that night before He is betrayed and when He is getting ready to give His life as a ransom for many. And that night he is gathered with his disciples around the table and he goes around and he washes their feet and then what does he say to them? He says, go and do likewise. Love like this. Serve like this. That is selfless, self-forgetful, self-denying love. A love that looks like the love of Christ. He says to his disciples, they will know you by your love for one another. It's the ethic of love. This is righteousness according to the king of the kingdom. This is what his disciples are to look like. This rule is to dominate their lives, and it's a rule that is all-encompassing without borders. It speaks, as D.A. Carson said, of quantity, as he says, whatever you wish, and it speaks of quality. Do also to them. And it is widely regarded as good. 
Everyone agrees, this is good. It's not how many in the, the history of the world have said, ah, oh, if only we could live by the Sermon on the Mount. Atheists will scream this in your history books. Well, maybe not in your history books, but they did in history. If only we could live by the Sermon on the Mount. And what they mean by that is if only we could live by the golden rule. And they're right. It's a summation. It's a climax of the sermon. It's a principle that is pretty simply simple, and it's widely accepted, though hardly ever practiced. If we left the church today and we went to lunch today and we entered into a restaurant and you asked your waiter or waitress or server or other people that were customers in the restaurant, if you asked them and you said, what do you think of the golden rule? You think we should live by it? Do you want others to treat you as you wish to be treated? And should you treat others as you would wish to be treated? And you'd be hard-pressed to find a person that say, no, I, I don't like that rule. That's not a good one. No, there's general agreement. Love wins. Be loving. Treat others kindly. Everyone likes that. Everyone wants that. But it's impossible. right. It's impossible. You can't do it. Religion after religion that has walked on the face of this earth has promoted this principle. Philosopher after philosopher has promoted this principle. Speaker after speaker at march after march and rally after rally will promote this principle. And they can't do it and you can't do it. You can't do it. It's impossible to live by this rule in and of ourselves. We're all sinners. And we're all opposed to God, and we are naturally opposed to one another. It is an impossibility. We are self-centered and self-consumed and self-worshipping. We are caught up with self and love is lacking. Those who promise that this would be a better world, that you would be a better you, and that even salvation can be secured by promoting this rule are but fools that are yelling in the wind. It's not possible. Because you and I and they can't do it in and of ourselves. And history screams that. And that is why the next two verses are so desperately needed. It's impossible in and of ourselves, but with Him all things are possible. You see, Jesus... This preaching of the Sermon on the Mount, it won't allow you to stand back at arm's length and say, I like that ethic. I want that ethic, but I don't want that Jesus. He won't let you do it. He won't allow you to say, I'm going to try that because you can't do it. This rule, this love can only flow from those that have received the love of the Father. That's why the verses before that come before it. 
The Father gives blessing upon blessing to His children. And the greatest of all blessings is the love that He bestows upon us in Christ. And it is from that love that so wells up in the heart of the believer that takes that heart of stone that is at enmity against God and at enmity towards its fellow man and makes it a heart of flesh. And it is from that heart that love can flow. Only from that heart. We cannot fulfill the second greatest commandment, the love your neighbor as yourself without their first being the first great commandment to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And you can't obey that commandment without God taking control of your heart. It's an impossibility. It only comes by Him first loving us and then us yielding ourselves to Him in faith and trust and love. You can't claim Jesus' teaching, his ethic, while denying him. You have to decide. And that is where he leads us. Our second question, the way. What way are you headed? You say, well, I try to live by this rule, but are you on the right path? Are you headed the right way? Well, I, I hope so. I trust that God will honor me because i tried to the best of my ability to love others and respect others, good. But you can't follow the rule unless you're on the way. The person who says they are following the rules of the Autobahn, but they're out in a paddle boat in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, it doesn't matter if they're trying to follow the rules of the Autobahn. They're not in the way. You have to be in the way. One has to make a decision. Each one has to make a choice. We've seen that as we've gone through the Sermon on the Mount, that there are always two ways. There's no in-between in Jesus' mind. There's not an infinite number of options there. There are not infinite choices there. There are but two, Jesus or no Jesus. Some like Jesus, like his teaching, but they don't want Jesus. They want his blessing, but not his cross. They want his comfort, but, but not his commands. And as John Stott said, Jesus cuts across every easygoing syncretism here. We can't have Jesus and the world. We can't have Jesus and something else. We can't have Jesus in anything else. We can't attempt to live by His ethic and not want His authority, so He commands us. He commands that we make a decision about the way that we're headed. In fact, He doesn't even want you considering the other option. He, he just gives a command for the, the one option that He wants you to embrace. He says with utter conviction, he says, enter. Enter into this kingdom. He gives no middle ground. There are simply two gates, there are two paths, and there's two destinations. That's it. You're either going one way or you're going the other way, Jesus says. 
it's quite an illustration. It's the kind that immediately pops into your mind as soon as you read it or you hear it. You're standing in the middle of the road and you get to a place and there is a fork in the road. And there's a gate on the left and there's a gate on the right. And the gate on the left is broad and the gate on the right is narrow. And you look beyond the gate on the left and the, the way is broad. And it looks like a very easy road, and it's filled with people. And you look at the gate on the right and beyond it, and the road is hard, and it's narrow, and there are very few on it. She said, these are the two options. There's the broad gate and the broad road and its destination. And there's the narrow gate, and there's the narrow road, and there's its destination. No in-between, no straddling the line. No, I'm going to start here and then end up here. No, one way or the other way. Jesus says, enter the narrow gate. But the broad gate seems more conducive. It's surely easier. A person can go through with all of their baggage. They don't have to cast much off. They don't have to get rid of much. They, that way doesn't ask for much. It doesn't require much. Sure doesn't scream sacrifice. And there are many that are that are on that path. Many will go that way. The, the world will carry them along and pat them on the back and say, You're fine. You have a lot of company on that path. And all the while, those that are on the broad way will have that added camaraderie of, of making fun of the people on the narrow way. Yet it's the narrow gate that Jesus points us to. It's this that we're to enter. Why is it narrow? Because you can't come with worldly baggage. You can't take things in with you. You have to throw them all. You have to turn away from your sin and you have to choose Him above all else. And notice that it is the gate that is narrow. It's not just that the gate is wide and then the path narrows, but from the very beginning, the gate is narrow and the path is narrow. At the very beginning, a person must throw off all that they would trust in and just simply enter by faith. As it would try to bring anything else in, can't. It has to be left outside. You have to squeeze through this, this narrow opening. No one can carry you along. No one can take you with them. No one can carry you through. You must squeeze through yourself and cast off everything that would encumber you. It's narrow. So we just go through just in bare humility and bare faith. It's also narrow because it's demanding. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and pick up his cross and follow me. If anyone would save his life, he must lose it. It requires turning away from all else for the sake of Christ. If anyone loves his father or mother more than me, he is not worthy of me. If anyone loves his son or daughter more than me, he is not worthy of me, Jesus said demanding. 
And it's narrow because it is often a lonely road, a suffering road. A path that is mocked from those walking down the other. Because those entering through this gate, their number will always be small. That way will never be popular. It will always be against the mainstream and even what is acceptable. And they will be called fools and simpletons and fear mongers and killjoys and in our day and age, bigots. In fact, Jesus uses two separate words here for narrow. And that second word there in verse 14 comes from the word that means to press in upon, to suffer. The road of suffering. The way of discipleship in the kingdom is the way of suffering. There will be opposition and there will be persecution. It is, as Jesus says, a hard path. It's not an easy path. The easy path is the path that remains at the same elevation or is descending. This is a path that is ascending. And it's headed to another realm. Well, that doesn't sound very appealing. It's hard, but it is sweet. It is sweet. And though it may be hard, it is the only way and is more than worth it. One day that sweetness will be eternally upon our lips and there will be no bitterness left. None. We don't do each other much service when we share the gospel as if this is the easy road. Jesus didn't. He said, look, the road of discipleship is hard. The gate is narrow. It requires from you. But it is well worth it. I do think a lot of our discouragement in the Christian life is due to the fact that we have false expectations of what it is to be. Jesus doesn't sell the Christian life like a snake oil salesman. He doesn't make false promises. It's a hard road. But lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. It is a hard road, but there is joy in the midst of it as we are walking with our Lord and our Savior. It's a hard road, but we are walking with delight as our Father looks upon us with pleasure. And we know we have union with God. Whatever our expectations of the world to come, they will be exceeded. You cannot outdream what God has planned for you in eternity. It's impossible. Difficulties in this life, they will pale in comparison to the ease there. The struggles will be eclipsed by the rest there. The tears surpassed by the delights there. Therefore, there is to be nothing that is in competition with Christ for our souls. 
nothing. Whatever it is that would encumber us and prevent us from going through this narrow gate that we want to continue to hold on to, it is worth casting off. It is worth getting rid of. It is worth abandoning. Whatever it is that would redirect you, whatever it is that is an earthly comfort that you can't get rid of, whatever is an earthly pleasure, whatever is an earthly desire, if it stands in the way of you entering this narrow gate, you must throw it off without hesitation. People make fun of you. Will you lose friends? It's worth it. You enter in. Will that website or that drink or those late nights or that camaraderie be lost? It's worth it. You enter in. You say, but I, I, I want to get my life in a better place first. I, I want to be able to offer something. I want to give him something as I enter. I'm not in the right place yet. And so you hold on to your pride. Throw off that pride. It's worth it. You enter in. You say, well, there are going to be hardships at work, and there's going to be hardships at home, and there's going to be hardships with my family. It's worth it. You enter in. This gate and this path leads to life. The other option is broad, and the, the gate is broad, and the way is broad, and the path is easy, but it leads to destruction, Jesus says. Each gate and each path, they have one destination. And you don't get to, at the end, when you have died and, and your eyes have closed and you are in that grave, you don't then get to decide, well, you know what, I went through that gate in life and I walked down that path in life, but now I get to make a decision that that will be my destination. No. Death comes so quickly. There are four of you in this room, this very week, that I've had to speak to about death in your life. Because you had someone die in your life this week. Come so quickly. The narrow gate and the hard path leads to life, to heaven, to glory. A gate that is wide is filled with many. You will have many companions. It's an easy path, but it ends in destruction. Not annihilation, but destruction, Jesus says. Some of us might sign up and say, look, if it's an easier life and I get annihilated at the end, I'll do that. That's not what he says. It's not annihilation. You don't just cease to be. It's destruction. And the picture there is something that is an eternal descending into utter misery and horror and death forever. So he's beckoning us. He's, he's saying, come along with me and, and look, stare through that gate and see what's at the end of it. 
Satan and the world and the sin will try and block yours and my view until the end of our days. But Jesus is saying, look, this one leads to life. This one leads to destruction. Now choose. Now choose. Asaph, there in Psalm 73, one of my favorite psalms, he talks about how he has lived the righteous life, and he says, my foot almost slipped off the path. He's on the path. He's on the narrow path and and the hard path, and his foot almost slipped. Why? Because he said as he looks over at the broad path, and they're in riches. He said they're fat from all the food that they get to eat because they are so rich. He says they have the praise of all the other men and their life is easy and this life is so hard. And he says, my feet almost slipped off the path. Until what? He says, until I went into the sanctuary and I discerned their end. That firmly rooted his feet again. He thought about their end. And how quickly all that is lost. And how quickly he would enjoy the eternal presence of his Father forevermore. None will have a single moment of regret. Go through the narrow gate and down the hard road, not in glory. On that day, we will stand there before the Lamb of Zion, before the Lion of the tribe of Judah. We will be waving our palm branches. We will be clothed in white robes, and we will be basking in the glory of our Father, shining in the face of Christ. And that will be ours forever. There will not be a moment of regret. All that we denied ourselves, all the sorrows that we endured here, all the waiting that we experienced, all these sufferings that accompany the narrow gate and the hard path in this life, they will be swallowed up in a moment as we cast our eyes upon our Savior and enjoy Him from there until the end of days, which there will be none. To bring it full circle. There's people who know this love. This love that is theirs by the gift of a heavenly father. It is these people who can look at those around them and pour out love upon them and live by the golden rule. It's these. Because none can love like the Christian can love because none are loved like the Christian is loved. So the golden rule becomes our rule for life because we are on our way to life eternal. I wonder if that's true of you today. Is that true of you today? If you can't live by this ethic otherwise, 
Is this true of you today? What rule am I living by? You have to answer that question. And what way is my life headed towards? You have to answer that question. We all do. No one can answer it for you. You must answer them for yourself. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful. We're thankful that you have given us your word. We are thankful that our Lord and Savior did not mince words. We're thankful that he has made it abundantly clear what the way to life looks like and what the way to life is. Oh, Father, we pray that those of us that look to you as Father and have seized upon Christ Jesus by faith, that you would keep our feet firmly planted on the narrow path that we might reach life eternal. And we pray for those even now in this room say, I have entered through the broad gate Remind them that it is not too late. At this very moment, they can enter through the narrow gate. And they can have what is at the end of that trail. Life with you, life abundant forevermore. Would you work faith in our midst, we pray, by your grace. In Christ's name, amen.